As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science, for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I'm sure you're familiar with a phrase that's very popular, which I despise, called nature versus nurture. (laughs) And uh, I despise this phrase for two reasons. Uh, The main one is that the word nurture means how your parents raised you and how they took care of you or failed to take care of you or even abused you in some cases, right? Uh, Really, that's a very narrow type of something that's much broader. I would replace it with the word experience. The other part that I hate about nature versus nurture is the versus, the idea that these things must always be in opposition, whereas in reality, they interact or or even in some cases reinforce each other. That's neuroscientist and author David Linden. He's written highly readable books about the human brain, and his latest is on the topic of what makes each of us unique. It turns out that's a question that began to intrigue him for a very personal reason. I found it fascinating, and I think you'll see why. Our conversation began by exploring the roots of our specialness, but then it took a sharp turn. Again, for a very personal reason. This is going to be great because you're such a good communicator. You know, everybody gets the same question to start with when they have a book and they're talking to an interviewer. What made you write this book? What was the what what made you think up the subject matter? And you've got a really charming story. Well, yeah, it is it is charming. The story is that I was thinking about this book uh, as a result of internet dating, the process by uh, which I uh, met the woman who is now my wife. And what uh, I realized was that when you go online and you are, you know, listing the things you like and trying to describe yourself and listing uh, the qualities of the person uh, that you hope to meet, that you are essentially making a list of traits. And these traits are all the things that comprise human individuality. And, uh, you know, gets a science nerd like me to thinking, well, which of these are heritable? Which of these come from the way you were raised? Which of them come about through other mechanisms. So like likes to read the Sunday Times all all morning. There's the question whether that's inherited or or the result of socialization. Well, yeah, you know, there's so much nonsense that goes on in this particular world. And I'm sure you've seen some of it in the media. Every once in a while, you'll see a, a claim like, oh, there is a gene for where you fall on the political spectrum. 
Yes, or right. uh, even there is a gene for empathy, and 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 these things are to varying degrees just you know complete and utter hogwash. So there's uh, it's a topic where there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of dross. How unique are we? As unique as we need to be. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, I think. One way to maybe put this into perspective is to say, I think most people have heard the term identical twin, right? Yes. And identical twins are caused when a, uh, when a fertilized egg then divides before it starts growing so that you have two presumably genetically identical fetuses, then babies, who've grown side by side in the womb. And you would imagine, well, this is about as identical as you could be. You have the same DNA, and you're growing side by side in the womb, having the same uh, experiences during development. But nonetheless, even at birth, identical twins, which scientists call monozygotic twins, aren't really identical, either in terms of their character or in terms of very physical things like the anatomy. So if you take two newborn identical twins and you put them in a scanner and you ask, well, what's the volume of the, the spleen in twin A or twin B? Well, it's not going to be exactly the same mm. because even though they have the same genetics and they grew up side by side, there are all kinds of things that conspire to actually make them individual. So I'm thinking of how identical the DNA must be. And yet, when I think of that, I think of something I heard you say once, that there's something in nature that loves individuality. And in fact, that you called the brain a mess. I think you called it actually a freaking mess. I, I, it sounds, sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the idea is what? Is the idea that the brain doesn't give you an exact moment-by-moment moment blueprint, but get, sends you in, the DNA sends you in general directions, or what? Yes, that's exactly right. And it's not just for the brain, it's for, for everywhere in the body. But the brain's a good example because it is so complicated anatomically with uh, so many cells and so many connections between them. So you might think, well, you know, the DNA, it has all these, uh, you know, three billion base pairs. It could make a very finely uh, drawn wiring diagram of the entire uh, nervous system, but that's not how it works. There actually isn't enough information, even in those 19,000 genes we have, uh, in order to completely specify at the finest level, wiring all the nerve cells together, much less specifying their very particular individual qualities. So, Rather, it gives a set of more general instructions. It says, hey, you neurons, I'm anthropomorphizing here. Hey, you neurons over there, you group of neurons over there, grow a little bit towards the top of the brain, and then about half of you cross the midline and keep growing out towards the ear. But <laughs> in one identical twin, 40% of the neurons will cross the midline, and in another identical twin, 65% of the neurons might cross the midline. In other words, the instructions from the DNA aren't exact. There's a certain amount of stochastic variation of pseudo-randomness that occurs during the development, and this is part of the reason why, even at birth, identical twins aren't really identical. I think a lot of us have gotten on the wagon of believing that identical twins are 
really, really very identical because of instances like the occurrence of the the Jim twins, which you write about in your book. Twins separated at birth, right? And both named Jim and both wound up marrying somebody with the same name, I think. I mean, it was so many similarities. That's right. And, the, you know, these sorts of things are uncanny. And, of course, they make for great copy, right? So they sell lots of newspapers and magazines. And in the case of the Jim Twins, there have been many cases like this. You know, people look for the things that are similar. Oh, they have similar jobs. They marry a similar person. Drove the uh, same have, car, I think. They drove the same car. They like to vacation at the same beach in Florida. And everyone goes, oh, this is so, this is so, this is so amazing. Every Everything must be genetically determined. Uh, but of course, uh, it isn't. I mean, you could make a very, very long list of things that are different between the Jim Twins, too. It, uh, that's, I'm sure, true, but it sure makes people say, what are the odds against that? Well, right. And at this point, we have a lot of studies of identical twins separated at birth. It's not just two or three or four. It's a couple of hundred, at least. And uh, there was a, a very famous study called the Minnesota Study of Twins Reared Apart, which got abbreviated as MISTRA. Hmm. And uh, they studied both uh, monozygotic twins reared apart and also normal fraternal twins reared apart. And they did a whole battery of tests, both psychological tests and also uh, medical tests. And this is part of the way that we've been able to make estimates for the heritability of certain human traits. That's how we know, for example, that among people in the United States, that the trait of height is about 85% heritable. That is to say, about 85% of the variation in the trait of height is determined by the genes that you inherit from your parents. Uh, most uh, personality characteristics like neuroticism or openness or agreeableness or risk-taking uh, have traits that are more in the ballpark of 30 or 40% heritable. It's not 100%. Uh, like earwax type is a hundred percent heritable trait. It's thirty or forty percent, but there's a as, heritable. As I component. remember from your book, some earwax is wet and some is dry. That's right. Everyone has either wet or, or dry earwax, and, and that's inherited. It's one hundred percent inherited, which makes it a very, very rare trait. And it's determined by a single gene, and we know what the gene is. So in that sense, it's a very rare trait that kind of anchors one end of the human trait spectrum. The other end of the human spe trait spectrum might be speech accent, because your speech accent isn't heritable at all. Now, I'm not talking about the aspects of your voice, whether it's high or low or resonant or reedy or nasal. I'm talking about what you, your speech accent that reflects where you're from and the people who are around you when you grew up. Uh, and this is a trait that is 0% heritable. But most of our human traits, whether they're physical traits like height or behavioral traits like, uh, like risk-taking, are somewhere in the middle. Uh, they are partially heritable. What are all the factors that impinge on us other than our DNA that give us various traits. 
Well, I'm sure you're familiar with a phrase that's very popular, which I despise, called <laughs> nature versus nurture. <laughs> right. And uh, I despise this phrase for two reasons. Uh, the main one is that the word nurture means how your parents raised you and how they took care of you or failed to take care of you or even abused you in some cases, right? Uh, really, that's a very narrow type of something that's much broader. I would replace it with the word experience. And by experience, I don't just mean social experience. I mean uh, the foods you ate when you were growing up, the foods your mother ate when she was carrying you in utero, the diseases your mother fought off when she was carrying you in utero, the day length, the latitude uh, uh, of the place where you spent your early years. These are all things that can influence traits. And that's experience broadly considered. The other part that I hate about nature versus nurture is the versus, the idea that these things must always be in opposition. Whereas mm. in reality, they interact or, or even in some cases reinforce each other. For example, if you're fortunate enough to be born uh, strong and coordinated, then you're much more likely to play sports and practice sports and get better at sports and become even better at sports than you were when, when you were young. And in this case, you're experience of playing sports and your genetics, which might have made you faster coordinated, are actually working together. They're mm. not in a, in a versus situation. They collaborate and reinforce each other to make you a better athlete. What's the outcome of all of this? How does it apply to our lives? I mean, I can, I can imagine an application of the uniqueness of everybody in communication. When we try to communicate with someone, especially someone we don't agree with, it doesn't help to think we're talking to this type of person. We have to find out who the person is in discrete detail to really get to them, to really communicate with them. We have to acknowledge their uniqueness. But that's, that's sort of an analogy. What do you think are the outcomes we can get from this study of uniqueness? Well, I think there are a couple. I, I would say in the medical realm, uh, I think understanding human uniqueness is going to be important to uh, improve medicine. In other words, we already know that you can inherit certain genetic variants that will make it uh, that a certain drug will work or not work for you. So you may have heard the term personalized medicine. Mm. Well, some of personalized medicine is going to reflect things like uh, your particular DNA, but there will also be personalized medicine that reflects what we call epigenetic factors, which is not the sequence of bases in your DNA, but the way certain genes have been turned on or off by the attachment of chemical groups to the DNA. And that is something that happens as a result of your experience in the world. In other words, epigenetics is the link between experience and, and DNA. So uh, one way in which uniqueness is important is going to be to make medicine better, to make therapies that are more tailored to individuals. I think in terms of the way our society works, 
an understanding of individuality and human traits is probably most important in terms of addressing the scourge of racism. Mm. Uh, I mean, when you see uh, the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville marching, they're not holding up banners about the heritability of traits, but it is that ideology that ultimately underlies what they do. In other words, they say certain groups are genetically inferior to others. You know, for the people in Charlottesville, they might say, well, yeah, so white people are genetically superior to black people or brown people. And it doesn't matter how much you 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 make things equitable in terms of the way people live and their access to to education or or safety or or being treated fairly in the workplace or in school because these differences will will still exist because they're hardwired into our DNA and all the evidence from genetics is against this idea there is no group of genes that you can point to that says, well, this makes this group of people smarter or this group of people more more violent or this group of people braver, for example. That mm -hmm. is nonsense. It doesn't exist. And I think on the social level, that's the most important thing you can take from the scientific study of individuality. How about you personally? Have your attitudes gone through an evolution? Well, yeah. What it has left me with, I think, is with an enhanced sense of empathy. Let me give an example. I think these days, more and more people are willing to accept the notion that addiction is a disease, that it's not merely a moral failing. You know, <clears throat> when you go into the doctor and you say, I have heart disease, your doctor uh, doesn't say, oh, you suck, you have heart disease, there's, there's something wrong with you. And these days, there aren't that many doctors who will say that if you're an addict too. However, if you're overweight, that's a different story. Both people in the general world and most doctors have a very moralistic attitude towards uh, body size. And we know that body mass index, or some people don't like that measure, but whatever is the best possible measure of fat burden in a body is a highly heritable trait. It's on the order of 60 or 70 percent. It's a big mm. chunk of it is heritable. Uh, and yet, as a society, we're not very compassionate to people who struggle with this, not nearly as compassionate as we are for people who uh, struggle with addiction and not even remotely as compassionate as we are for people who struggle with, say, something like schizophrenia, which is the most heritable uh, neuropsychiatric condition that we have. So I would say if there's anything that I have been led to in my own way of thinking and my own way of interacting with people is that you've got to be empathetic and compassionate when you consider these kinds of situations. When we come back from our break, David Linden tells me how he received a diagnosis of cancer, giving him only months to live and how that caused the neuroscientist in him to reflect on how our brains handle terrible news. 
He has some fascinating insights. Right after this. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience to strengthen the relationship between science and society and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with David Linden. The notion of how unique we are is interesting to me, especially because of your recent history. I'm treading on, I'm trying to tread lightly here, but you wrote about your diagnosis in an article in Atlantic, and it it really uh, is something I'd, I'd like to talk about with you. It's okay. It's certainly okay. When did you get the diagnosis of this terrible case of cancer? So uh, I got a diagnosis of uh, my cancer uh, after having surgery uh, just about a year ago. And it's one of those diagnoses where they give you a time and a date. Well, yeah, they do. They do their best. Uh, The kind of cancer that I have, which is called synovial sarcoma, uh, is uh, a relatively rare cancer. And it's also where it is presenting in my body, which is in my heart, is a relatively rare place. Mm. So it's not one of these situations where the doctors have lots and lots of statistics to go on when they are trying to make your lifespan prognosis. If you look in the medical literature, they're not tables of the results of what's happened in thousands and thousands of cases. Rather, they're mostly isolated case reports. And so... It's not surprising that their their guesses are pretty vague, but 12 months ago, I was given 6 to 18 months to live. I think I'll probably go a little longer than 18 months, given that I'm doing just fine and I'm 12 months in. You seem hardy. Is the treatment uh, not invasive? Well, no. Uh, there are times where I haven't been hardy. So the huh. treatment was rather dramatic. It involved open-heart surgery mm. and the excision of a tumor the size of a Coke can uh, that had grown into the wall of my heart. And because it had grown into the wall of my heart, it couldn't be entirely removed or else they would 
make my heart so that it couldn't function anymore. And uh, so they took as much as they could. They left behind what they had to leave. And then they treated what was left with both radiation and chemotherapy. And of course, those are things that make you feel real ill. So there have been periods where I felt real lousy, as people tend to do under that sort of treatment. But those treatments are over. And so right now I'm feeling pretty chipper. And you, you certainly appear so. I was really interested to see that the piece you wrote was organized around the idea that you weren't just, you weren't an ordinary civilian approaching this diagnosis. You were thinking about it as a scientist. And you came up with three, three realizations that I thought were really fascinating. Well, well, thank you. And I think one thing you have to realize is that when you are a biomedical researcher like myself, and you go to the doctor, the way you get treated at the doctor is not the way an average civilian gets treated at the doctor, in the sense that they know that I'm really interested in all the, the medical details. So, for example, my surgeon comes up with this big grin on his face. He says, I took movies on my iPhone during your heart surgery. You want to see them? And, of course, being a geek, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to see those. That's why we're looking and go, ooh, what's that? You know? Yeah. I had an I had an operation on my uh, on my intestines, and the doctor wanted to show me my guts in, in video afterwards, and I was just as curious as you were. Good. Well, you see, I think there is something to. I mean, obviously, everyone has to find their own way in this situation, and there's no universal right or wrong. But for me, being engaged with the medicine and the science of my own cancer is a way to feel a sense of agency. It's a way to not be powerless and not, not to be entirely buffeted by, you know, the ill winds of fate. So to me, it's crucial that my curiosity keeps going as I think about my situation as uh, someone with a bad cancer prognosis. And you mentioned the three things, so maybe I'll start talking about what those, what those are. The, the, the first realization that I had, which really I think for most people wouldn't be a realization, I just kind of had it because I'm a little thick and it, and it took a lot to bring this home to me, and that is the, the notion that you really can occupy two highly different mental states at the same time, two different emotions. Like so, what? for example, well, when I consider uh, the situation of my cancer and my prognosis, I am both simultaneously furious, you know, that I am going to be taken away from all this wonderful life that I have, you know, with people I love and colleagues and friends. But I'm also so grateful for all life has given me. I'm simultaneously angry and feeling a sense of gratitude. I mean, by any one measure, I've had a terrific life. I've had wonderful people around me. I've had the opportunity in my work and my writing to follow my own curiosity. And that's a gift like, like no other. And the implication of that sounds to me that it may be encouragement to somebody who's feeling mostly the anger to realize they can still keep feeling angry, but they can feel gratitude at the same time. 
Absolutely. These things should not be considered mutually exclusive. And I think some of the fault of this actually goes to my field, which is neuroscience. And that is we classically have said, oh, well, what kind of mode is the brain in? Are we in a fight mode or a flight mode? Do we want to, you know, fight or flee or do we want to, you know, rest and digest? And this kind of idea that the brain sort of switches back between binary modes really doesn't capture the complexity, I think, of, of human cognitive states or, or of human emotions. Uh, so yeah, that was sort of the first revelation I had. And the second had to do with the brain not being able to measure absolute value. Yeah, and this is this is something that I think really has become a theme in neuroscience in the last 30 years or so. And that is the brain is not built to give us the lowdown about the external world, to give us the most accurate representation of reality. From the first moment that we're aware of sensory experience, it is being convolved uh, with with our our past history, with our with our expectations, and with context, uh, in order for us to have an emotional feeling about it. Emotion and perception aren't separate things; they're deeply intertwined at the very first moments of perception. It's not as just in, oh, we can take in objective information and then only later do we begin to put an emotional gloss on it. No, that's not the way it works. From the very first moment you perceive things through any of your senses, whether it is a, it's touch or, or, or sight or smell or hearing, there is an emotional and a contextual aspect to that. Yeah, the contextual aspect really came home to me when you talked about being happy with getting a raise at your work until you find out what the guy next to you is getting. That's right. We can't help, help but compare ourselves. You know, this is right, right. You're not supposed to cover your, you know, your, 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 your neighbor's uh, uh, donkey, uh, right? There's a, a biblical injunction, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> but if he has two donkeys, the bets are off. <laughs> but, you know, this is a deeply human thing. And people have done brain scanning experiments where they have a, a, a setup where, where you know, you're winning a certain amount of money and you would think well 10 bucks is 10 bucks is 10 bucks and that should uh, should correspond to a certain amount of activation of the reward circuitry in the brain but if you're winning 10 bucks and the guy next to you is winning 100 bucks well the <laughs> activation of the reward circuitry in your brain is not nearly as intense we are naturally comparative another example of this kind of subjectivity in perception i think comes from the sense of touch so imagine you're with your sweetheart, and it's a loving, connected time, and you're feeling good, and they give you a nice caress on the arm, and you go, oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah, yeah, what a, what a nice thing. That feels good. Now imagine instead you're with your sweetie, and it's an argument, and it's in the middle, and it's not resolved. You're going back and forth, and you're both with each other, and they give you that same caress, and it doesn't feel the same at all. It feels unwanted. It feels almost like a violation, like there's a bug on there. Get that hand off of me. What do you mean? We're in the middle of an argument. No, it's the exact same caress. It's the same pressure on your arm in the same place, you know, for the same time with the same temperature given by the same person, but it feels completely different from the very first moment it occurs. 
And this to me is a great example about how perception is inference. And the way this was brought home to me in terms of my cancer diagnosis was how I thought about, about lifespan. If before my diagnosis, when I was 59 years old, if someone had said to me, oh, you got five years to live, I would have gone, oh, no, five years, how unfair. I'm not ready to die. That's, that's too soon. Only five years, that's terrible. Now, with my diagnosis, if you said, you got five years to live, I would say, hooray, I'd be clicking my heels together. I'd going, that's wonderful. I could do so much in five years. I could have so many good times. I could be with my people. I could get work done. I could travel. I could save her life. So, you know, I would have something as fundamental as five years of life still is perceived very differently depending on the context. And that's been brought home to me by my situation. And that leads very much to the third realization, which I find the most interesting of all, because I've always wondered why none of us, it seems almost to a person, wants to think about our death, when in fact it's the one thing we all have in common. We'd, no matter who we are, we have a limited time. And we don't want to think about it. And your, your third realization really gets into that, I think. Yeah, well, I think it, it goes beyond just sort of wanting to think about it, uh, uh, maybe a little further, to what we're capable of yeah. imagining. Yeah, Right? And, and what I find is that I am not really capable of engaging in a really deeper, meaningful way with the idea of my own demise or the prospect of a world without me in it. Now, of course, I can do all the practical things. I can, you know, meet with a lawyer about my will, and I can write the reference letters for the people in my lab so when I'm gone, they have those to move on with their career. And, you know, I can write letters to my friends and my kids. And, you know, this is all nuts and bolts stuff. But in terms of really deeply thinking about myself gone, I find my mind sort of skittering over the surface of it. And I don't think it is really something about me personally. I think that this is something deeply human and cross-cultural and cross-individual that we share. And I think the reason comes from something fundamental about how the brain works. Now, I've been a brain researcher for many years now, more than 40 years, and when I started in brain research, we had this idea that the brain was fundamentally reactive, that it sat there, something would come in through the senses, the brain would process it, maybe make a decision, and then you'd maybe make a movement or move your vocal cords to produce speech. And it was essentially a, a reactive model of the brain. And what we now know is that it's much more accurate that the brain is fundamentally predictive, that a lot of the effort of the brain is trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future, and really mostly in the very near future. Like, is that baseball flying through the air going to hit my head? Is this person walking down the street who I'm coming uh, alongside friend or foe? Am I likely to become hungry soon? And these are things that happen continuously and subconsciously. We can't turn them off. Our mind is going to do it all the time. And I think because we are hardwired to be predicting the future, 
that presupposes that there will be a future. <laughs> that's the part I love. And that's what makes it so hard to truly engage with our own demise. And what I believe is that this is not just an issue for individuals, but it's an issue for societies. And, and you know, if I'm to get speculative, what I would say is that, you know, if you look around the world, their cultural anthropologists will tell you that there uh, is religious thought everywhere. Everywhere you go around the world, there's religious thought. Not everyone has it, but you can find it in every single culture, everywhere. A lot of times people don't call it that. They just say, well, of course, this is just stuff everybody knows is true. Mm. Uh, but these are what, what scientists would call non-naturalistic explanations. They are, they are articles of faith. And while not every single religion has the idea of an afterlife or, or, or reincarnation or, or fusion with the divine uh, after you die, most of the world's religions do. And I think the, the reason they do, my speculation, is that the reason that this is so popular all around the world is because of this neurobiological quirk, because our brains are built as prediction machines and we can't imagine uh, a situation where there isn't a near future. We create these constructions in which our consciousness endures, and these become the basis of the world's religions. Well, this has been a unique conversation in every way. Thank you for that. Before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Oh, my. In, roughly to do with communication, and in a very general way. First question, what do you wish you really understood? I wish that I really understood human memory and how it was stored in the brain and uh, how it works and generalizes and fails. This has been, more than in anything else, the focus of my scientific work for 40 years or so now. And it's a topic where uh, we still are mostly in the dark. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's rough. Uh, you know, particularly in, uh, in, if, if these facts have gotten, have gotten politicized, uh, you know, I think so much of communication and, you know, you as someone who's, who's dedicated so much of your, your life to this practice knows that fundamentally communicating, whether it's about science or anything else, is an empathetic act. You have to put yourself in the mindset of the person who doesn't know what you know or doesn't feel what you feel, who doesn't share your experience. So when I'm trying to tell someone their facts are wrong, I try to think, how can I do this in a way that isn't going to just yield defensiveness? You know, if I were receiving this information, what is something that could possibly persuade me? Great, great. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> Turn off their microphone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. 
How do you start up a genuine conversation? Yeah, you know, I wish I was better at that, honestly. You know, I am, I am one of these people who is, I call it a, a performance introvert in the sense that, you know, when I'm in a situation like with, this, with you, I don't have any problem running my mouth a lot. Because I'm the focus. It's, it's a very set-up situation. But, you know, in a dinner party with strangers, I have a lot harder time doing this. I'm very envious of people who can do this. You know, I, I tend to turn to, to things that are rather stock and, and, and you know, often not compelling, and, and it doesn't always work. Uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't say this is not something in which my advice is very good, because I don't feel like I've really succeeded at it. Okay, well, maybe the next time we meet, you'll have a, you'll have a technique you've developed yeah. from, from thinking about it. Next to last, what gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? You know, I think ultimately confidence is a social construction. I'm fortunate to have a very supportive home environment, to have a very supportive work environment. And it's supportive not just in the sense of people are nice to me, but that people are challenging and constructive in the best way. When my children were small, my son at about age seven asked, Dad, are you the best neuroscientist in the world? And I said, oh, certainly not. He said, oh, well, are you at the best neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins? And I said, no, not even remotely. I said, Jacob, I'm not even the best neuroscience on the ninth floor of the Ontarian building at Johns Hopkins. <laughs> I said, I'm fortunate enough to be around people who impress me every day and challenge me every day and to uh, expand my mind every day. And that environment, to me, is the bedrock of my confidence. Great, great. Last question. What book changed your life? Wow. I'm trying to remember the title of it. It was a children's book. And it was, uh, it was oh, Homer Price. So uh, Homer Price is a children's book uh, about a young boy, uh, and it's set in Ohio in, in, a, in a fictional town. And uh, there's a story in this book called Ever So Much But More So. And in this story, uh, there's this compound called Ever So Much But More So, and and whatever you pour it on, it becomes more intense. So if you pour it on a chocolate bar and you eat it, then it becomes the most chocolatey chocolate bar you've ever had. But of course, <laughs> you can imagine what happened. People in the town start eating it, and then all their characteristics become that much more exaggerated. And when I read this story as a young child, I thought, you know, could that happen? That's remarkable. I want to... I want to study the brain. I want to, I want to understand mental function. I, I want to understand what could possibly make us ever so much but more so and how, how we get to be the way we are uh, to start with even before uh, such, uh, such a compound could act. So even as a boy, you were fascinated by traits. You know, that really was, uh, was formative for me.
Well, this conversation has been formative for me in a couple of ways. I really admire your your take on life, and I, I'm sure people listening will have got a good jolt of the same kind of empathy you were talking about, as well as confidence in the future we all face. I thank you for that. I thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been loads of fun. It sure has. Thank you, David. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. David Linden is professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He's written books on the evolution of the brain and how the brain perceives touch and pleasure. His most recent book is Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality. His essay on receiving his cancer diagnosis appeared in the December 30th issue of Atlantic Magazine. His webpage is davidlinden.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kashmir Hill. She's a reporter for the New York Times, where she writes about how the technologies that are making our lives easier are also eroding our privacy. And she takes an engagingly personal approach. You know, my Amazon Echo, the smart speaker, was basically talking to Amazon every three minutes, just sending a ping to Amazon. Even when we weren't using it, um, even when it was muted, it's still sending data back and forth to the company. My TV was reporting what we were watching. My my robot vacuum um, was sending information back to the company. And the company has actually talked about how useful that data could be. Um, they said, you know, we have basically maps of people's homes. We could tell, you know, a furniture company that they lack a coffee table and you could start targeting them with coffee table ads. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about what kind of data you can get about people if you're in their homes, seeing what they're doing day to day, because everything we have is connected to the internet. Kashmir Hill and how she even used technology to track her husband. Fortunately, he played along with it. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. 
Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.